If you listen to this podcast and follow what we do at Troutbitten, then you're a thoughtful angler, and you don't accept the status quo simply because that's how it's always been done. Squall of Fishing designs and creates fly fishing apparel with this same philosophy. Squalla was started by a group of lifelong fly anglers who spent their careers working for some of the biggest names in the outdoor industry, and they understood that essential fly fishing apparel like waders, jackets, sun gear, and insulation could simply be better. So now, Squalla makes gear for us, the like-minded few, serious anglers who don't take themselves too seriously. Check them out at squallafishing.com. Water is essential for life, but for Orvis, it's the blood of the brand. Orvis has been the leader in fly fishing since 1856. No other brand can match the explorative and innovative spirit they bring to the water today. Everything at Orvis is about inspiring and empowering adventure and wonder in nature. Rooted in the vitality of fly fishing, fueled by passion and curiosity for the outdoors, Orvis designs and develops products and experiences providing the knowledge and expertise to enable more meaningful moments and connections in nature. With over a century and a half of experience in the field and on the water, Orvis seeks to ignite that passion in others. This is the Trout Bitten Podcast. Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten? Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten? Yeah, Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten. It's about trout. Wild trout. This is Trout Bitten. This is the Trout Bitten Podcast, and thank you for tuning in. I'm Dominic Swantoski, the owner of Trout Bitten and the author of TroutBitten.com. My friends are here with me to talk about hatches and strategies. That's our topic for episode three of season three. So I think one of the greatest attractions to fly fishing can also present one of the biggest barriers. It's the bugs. The aquatic insects that make up the bulk of the trout's food base are intriguing, but they're also kind of mysterious, especially at first. The hatch charts, the life cycles, and the various behaviors of mayflies, caddisflies, stoneflies, and midges come to the angler in a complex web of overlapping information that takes seasons or perhaps a lifetime really to process. And then there's the crustaceans like crest bugs and scuds and even terrestrial insects at various times of the year. All of it, all of these bugs and understanding how to imitate them with a fly is perplexing for every new angler and every experienced angler. And the truth is, many lifelong fishermen never take the time to learn much about the insects that trout eat. But that's all right, because here's the thing. You don't have to, necessarily. Many times, the specifics of the hatching bugs don't even matter that much. Hatch matching seems synonymous with fly fishing for trout. And for decades, the focus on fooling fish was more fly-centric in this industry than anything else. What fly should I use? That was always the question. And it makes sense because changing patterns is probably the easiest solution when trout won't eat your fly. And in some cases, getting just the right fly in front of the trout in just the right way really does make the difference. So fly selection matters, but here it is again. You don't have to match the hatch. Not precisely anyway, not usually. You can have a wildly successful fishing season without knowing Latin names or the genus of any mayfly species, I promise. 
And you could probably have a great season by ignoring the specifics of hatches altogether too. My point is, wonderful fishing can be had without knowing much about the hatches that we'll focus on tonight. Really, don't let the complexities of trout bugs stand in the way of going out there and enjoying a good day on the water. Now, with that said, there's no denying that a fundamental understanding of what trout eat, both underneath and on top of the water, absolutely helps catch more trout. After all, our goal is to get a trout to eat the fly, right? So knowing about trout foods only makes sense. Positive results are sure to follow. The advanced angler explores the nuances of these bugs. Some insects are good swimmers and emerge fast. So a presentation outside of a pure dead-drifted nymph might be the trigger that turns trout on. And likewise, understanding the life cycle of a mayfly helps us realize why seeking out and imitating the spinner stage is one of the best dry fly opportunities on the river. These are the kind of things to know about trout bugs. This is why we follow the hatches. We pay attention and try to meet the trout on their own terms, give them more of what they're eating right now. Understanding everything we can about these bugs and how trout respond to them is a big piece of the puzzle that we're trying to solve out there every day. And sometimes it's the keystone because at certain times, the bug life of a river is the central player in a trout's daily life. All right, before we jump into our topic, let's say hi to my friends and answer a couple of questions from listeners too. I'm joined tonight by five excellent anglers beer drinkers, and bullshitters. Josh Darling, Trevor Smith, Bill Dell, Austin Dando, and Matt Grobe. Gentlemen, thanks for being here. I'm last again. You know, happy to be here. What's the matter? Last again. <laughs> it's going to start to mean something. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I'm feeling it. The order of importance. Well, guys, what's the biggest trout you saw this week? How about the rarest fish that you saw this week? doesn't have to be big. Anybody? I got a uh, Arctic grayling. Which Matt, you got a grayling in Montana. Oh, yeah. Are, are there wow. a lot over there? I didn't know That's that. That's awesome. Yeah, there's they're starting to be. They're trying to revive the species, and so they're doing Ooh. some like reclamation stuff on some of the tribs that dump into some of the waterways. And so, occasionally, over the last three or four years, I've been surprised. This time of year, especially, like this is when I feel like I catch them. Um, but it's always a welcome hmm. change up. So, are those stalkers or are those wild? Uh, stalkers, I bet. Good question. It's hard to say. I mean, I, because of the reclamation stuff, yeah, they, they've they stocked them, in, and I'm, I'm guessing they're stocked fish mm -hmm. in my neck of the woods. There's plenty of wild ones in the state, but, um, yeah, they're trying to bring mm -hmm. them back. And so I think I got some stockies, but uh, it's a good sign. Nice. That's neat. Did you, hey, mm -hmm. did you uh, hold one up cool. and then, you know, lift that fin, that back fin? Oh, you have to do that, right? Did you give it the grobe? <laughs> Did you grobe it? That's your thing. You have to grobe. Did you wedge it in the camera? No, I, <laughs> I was feeling, feeling bad about myself ever since I said that on the podcast. Yeah, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I kind of just, yeah. just kept it wet and let it go. We'll help you with that. <laughs> All right. Hey, guys, I keep getting questions from listeners in my inbox. That's a good thing. Thanks, everybody out there for sending in questions. Sometimes I get the same question a couple times within a week, and that's cool. And I often will pick that question, uh, and here we go. This is from Ross Rooker through email. Austin, you want to read this one? Yeah, sure. All right, so the question is, Hi, Dominic. I've been reading your post for about a year now. I'm really enjoying the podcast. Thanks for what you do. 
it definitely has made my fishing better and more enjoyable. And it sometimes starts a larger discussion on tactics with my two closest fishing friends, my dad and my wife. It has brought us all closer together with a shared passion. I have a question for you and your friends. I've recently been hearing some prominent anglers promoting a limit on the number of fish we catch and release to help conserve fish populations. They tend to cite fish mortality studies that put catch and release mortality somewhere around the 10% or more mark. Like you and your friends, I like to fight fish quickly, land them in a net, keep them wet, let them go as quickly as possible. But I also like to catch a lot of fish. As tactics improve, success is measured by numbers of fish to the net. Is this unsustainable? That's a fair question. What do we got, guys? Uh, this is tough. Right? I, I guess, show me a scientific study that, that has that, or I guess for as much as all of us fish, how often do you see a dead fish along a bank? Mm-hmm. Really rarely. I get it that there's that there's animals and stuff around that could easily clean them up the night after or whatever. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I think this ten percent of fish caught released mortality. I think it's nonsense. The trouble with a lot of fishing studies is they don't they're not well funded. I don't think they have enough money to do oh a deep enough study. Mm. And maybe one study showed that oh ten percent. I can almost guarantee. Eh, I'll guarantee it. I don't kill 10% of the fish that I release. I'm positive you guys don't either. That's a good Mm. point. I think that if it is true, if 10% is true, then it's probably not the people who are, I think the people Mm. who are catching a lot of fish are the people who care enough about it to probably have good release practices. Nice. Perfect. That's a very good point. In medicine, anytime we read a, a study that we're supposed to apply to our particular patients, we always ask the question, is this data set transferable? to the particular Mm. patients that I'm interacting on a daily basis. And I think Mm -hmm. from my understanding, and I will look into this a little bit more, but I'm pretty sure that this is not, this is not a study that was done on wild trout and not necessarily a study that was Mm. done like with barbless hooks and not necessarily a study, Mm. you know, so as you start to tick down the boxes of how many items we have in common with the study that was done, yeah. probably the data set becomes less and less transferable. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, that's good stuff. They, there was an interesting uh, article that came out in the Helena newspaper this week on the Missouri. Okay. And the Missouri, they shocked more fish than they have since like 2012. It was the second most fish they've ever got on record, which was equivalent to about 7,000 right. fish per mile. And it coincides with the second busiest river in the state of Montana. Mm-hmm. So it just... And there you go. I mean, it doesn't yeah. make sense, right? It's the second busiest river, most fish. Uh, so that coincides completely with PA Fish Commission's shocking surveys. Our catch and release waters just continue to have more and more trout. And yet, yes, yeah. they continue to have more and more anglers. So where's the problem? Right. You know, I don't get it. You could probably... I really don't get it. You could probably play devil's advocate too and say, what mm-hmm. fish do perish from that hooking may be the weaker in the genetic pool, that you're allowing healthier fish to survive, that you're giving more habitat availability to the surviving fish. You could probably take this argument in a number of different ways, but none of us have population issues on our on these waterways that we're fishing. That's a good point. Yeah. I also, I don't think that like the kind of people that are worrying about this or mentioning this are the people that are actually catching 50 fish. <laughs> I hear it from people that, who aren't catching 50 fish. And they seem to kind of assume that large groups of anglers are out there just racking up ridiculous fish counts every trip. And if that's what you think, 
Like then maybe get off the internet yeah. and away yeah. from social media for a while. Right. It's only I think you're being in- Yeah. <laughs> right. No, I think <laughs> yeah. you're being influenced in a very unusual way. Nobody's mm-hmm. out there doing that. Nobody's pounding 50 fish in a day, especially wild trout. And the other- you're not. They're not bluegill. You know what I mean? The other thing that's hard about this is, mm. and we've mentioned in past episodes, no one fishes as much as they'd like to. So let's yeah. say you haven't been fishing in three weeks and you're finally mm-hmm. good to go. You're not going to be thinking about, I can only catch five fish today and then I get to go home. Oh, thank you. you know? Yes. Like, yes. No one's going to do that. Right. That's, that's awesome. Awesome. I think it's a dangerous message to start telling people, oh, hey, you know, don't, don't worry about if you catch fish. It's just the experience. Now, we acknowledge mm-hmm. over and over and over in these podcasts for, because to our hearts, each and every one of us loves the everything about fly fishing, mm-hmm. that experiential side. But we are there, and what keeps us in the game for a lifetime is catching fish. It's that puzzle. It's that mystery. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. What we need is more conservationists. We need people who love the rivers and love trout fishing, everything about it. And frankly, I think this message that you're catching and releasing too many fish, you're going to hurt them, is a dangerous one. Uh, Because the next logical step, if you think about it, is, hey, maybe you shouldn't be fishing at all. And that is the kind of message that provides fuel for organizations like PETA. So people promoting this are on a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. So, so the question was, is catch and release fishing unsustainable? No, it's sustainable. It's mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> you even have the stats there with the shocking surveys to back it up. And like Josh said, it's the, kind of, the, pe- the people who can go out there and catch 50 fish on a really good day, they know how to take care of the fish. You earn that. And you know what? They're probably going to move away mm-hmm. from whatever tactic is catching you 50 fish, because honestly, that can get kind of boring and you're going to try to try to mix it up. Good question. I think it's worth saying too, and this is, this is obvious, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, there is a time when, when water temperatures hit a certain, and you guys, we spoke in depth about it, that might not be yeah. the time for everybody to be out there trying to catch 50 fish, right? Because then the mortality could be an issue. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Great point. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like we always have to say, there are nuances to all of this, you know? Yeah. And over freshly stocked fish, you know, if these are stocked fish, yeah. Joey and I were fishing for stocked fish yesterday. It was not hard to catch them. It was day two of opening season here, you yeah. know? <laughs> and we may have been able to stand at one of the bridge holes and bang 50 fish. Yeah. I don't know. But we didn't want to, you know? Yeah. I just don't want to be discouraging people to catch fish. Right. It's catching fish that gets people involved in this sport and gets them, again, coming back and excited about fishing again. And it's those fishermen who help us to conserve and improve everything about our rivers. Right on. I don't want to lose anglers. Yeah. Tactical Fly Fisher was started in 2015 by fly fishing team USA angler Devin Olson with a mission to bring American anglers the techniques and gear that dominate the international competitive fly fishing scene. While you may have no desire to compete, you can still benefit from the same strategies which competitive anglers use to make them more successful on the water. Whether you want to buy a urinimping rod, a stillwater fly line, or just some hooks and beads to fill your fly box, we've got you covered. And our teaching materials will help you learn how to use whatever products fill up your cart. Head on over to tacticalflyfisher.com and use the code TFF10 to get 10% off flies, fly tying supplies, or terminal tackle. 
Water is essential for life, but for Orvis, it's the blood of the brand. Orvis has been the leader in fly fishing since 1856. No other brand can match the explorative and innovative spirit they bring to the water today. Everything at Orvis is about inspiring and empowering adventure and wonder in nature. Rooted in the vitality of fly fishing, fueled by passion and curiosity for the outdoors, Orvis designs and develops products and experiences, providing the knowledge and expertise to enable more meaningful moments and connections in nature. With over a century and a half of experience in the field and on the water, Orvis seeks to ignite that passion in others. All right, guys, that's good stuff. Let's, uh, let's get to the topic at hand. Let's dig into the hatches and the strategies. All right, so books and articles and videos, online debates, like there's an encyclopedia of knowledge surrounding trout stream insects. And we'd be foolish to try to tackle all of that in this hour-long podcast. So this is not the place to learn the full life cycle of these insects or the intricacies of their behaviors. Instead, let's focus on the overall strategies for fishing the hatches. Let's highlight what each of us here considers the most important facts about these bugs. And let's talk about how their emergence affects our tactics and our plans, how the behaviors of these bugs changes the trout's response and how we take advantage of those facts to put more fish in the net. Sound good? Yep. Yep. All right, so I think the best way to approach things is to just walk through our season of bugs on the water. The timing of hatches is different across the country. Of course, we acknowledge that and across the world. So too, the presence or abundance of specific insects is different in each region or even just 10 miles down the road on the next creek. But I know that much of what we'll talk about here applies to most of the trout waters in the world with different timing or perhaps adjusted applications, right? Here in Pennsylvania, our first major hatch that trout really respond to is the blue-winged olive in March. And then all the way into November, after dozens of other species have hatched through spring, summer, and fall, the last major hatch we have is the olive. So, let's start with the blue-winged olive. Uh, I have a special place in my heart for the olive. Let's start there. Once the olives start, uh, what's your strategy, guys? How, How does it affect the way that you fish? How does it change what you've been doing all winter long, and now the olives are there? This is just a testament to the fact that being out on the water means a whole lot more than than doing a bunch of research and doing mm-hmm. too much planning. Because if you look at most hatch charts, they're not going to say that the blue wings olive start until May or June. Oh my. If you look at them, that's what they say usually is what I found. And, but if you're out there, you see them starting in March. I mean, sometimes late February. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. That's how it was this year. Also, yeah. what a lot of hatch charts for around here will show is the little black stonefly. I pretty much yeah, ignore yeah. that one because the trout yeah. seem to ignore it. For me, yeah. Yeah. am I missing that, you know, or are we going to start with the olive? The little back stonefly is definitely there, but it's like, it's the first thing the fisherman sees that gets them excited, I feel nice. like, and it doesn't yeah. get the fish excited. No. Yeah. At least on top. Right on. So I've had some, some epic days on the little black stonefly back home. There it is. That's why you're here. <laughs> I mean, back home. Yeah. Lies. On, All lies. On some of the uh, delayed harvest waters in southwestern Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. That's that's like a go-to hatch <laughs> that is earlier than the olives, and I've had some wonderful fishing on on tr- on stock trout waters with that bug. So you know, like you were saying, Noam, there's regional stuff, and that part of the state definitely gets a strong 
hatch early season that's worth fishing. So is that up top or underneath your success? I mean, Matt. Up top. Yeah, if the water's right, right? That I mean, I, no that kidding. plays into so much, right? If the if the water is right and 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 we all know how hard it is to hit that that water that's conducive for to fish looking up yeah. in that early season window, but when it lines up, you can have some really good early season action on that little black stone fly in some of the southwestern uh uh freestoners. Southwestern PA freestoners. That's like a 16 or a 14, hmm. right? Yep. Anybody cool. else on the on the on the uh, little black stone, or can we finally talk about the olives? <laughs> I get excited. Get to, get to what's important. <laughs> I will say, I think Matt brought up a great point, which I think applies mm-hmm. to kind of all hatches. Is if you don't hit the right weather conditions, yeah, or stream levels, hatches don't mean anything. Yeah, Bill. To to an extent, as far as like dry fly action, because if it's super bright and sunny, fish aren't going to look into the sun and eat that little black stone fly or yeah. a sulfur or a caddis most days. And the same thing if it's, you know, if a river averages 100 CFS and it's at 1,000 CFS, the fish isn't going to work that hard to get through that current, all that right. current to get to the top to eat that fly. All the way to the top, right? Yeah. But they might eat the nymphs underneath, yeah, right? And we all kind of pay attention. No matter yeah. what hatch we're about to talk to, talk about, no matter what bug we address, I think we all... Uh, imitate these bugs underneath, right? And like you're saying, Bill, mm-hmm, they very mm-hmm. well might not come up yeah. at the top. We're we're ready for it. I know I'm ready for it and hoping for it because I love fish and dry. But yeah, mm-hmm. good point, dude. I mean, yeah. yeah, you can't expect the trout to do too much. They're efficient. I think one one of my favorite things about the olive hatch is the beginning or the advent of trout kind of looking for insects doing things and being able to drift in ways other than just trying to get the most pure bottom of the river dead drift, you know, through the winter time, you just get so locked into, all right, the purest dead drift I can get, I'm going to get it as low as I can. My tag is going to be 12 inches above my main fly. I'm trying to drag, I'm trying to put both near the bottom. And as it gets to the blue-winged olive, I start spacing out my tag a little bit. Mm, I start nice. swinging my drift out. You know, just like all this motion sort yep. of comes into the world, and and the trout seem to be back in three-dimensional, huh. you know, behavior. And <laughs> so it's cool. just exciting. That's a neat way of know? saying it. Good way to put it. Yeah. When I lived up in State College, my strategy was always to show up, you know, late morning, 10, 30, 11, and kind of get mm-hmm. get into the section of water that I wanted to fish because I mean we we went from a from a deep dark winter of nymphing mm-hmm. you know tight line tactics bobbers and then all of a sudden those fish I mean is there a is there a better hatch that gets those fish mm-hmm. to the surface than the no. spring olive hatch I mean it's pretty special right there's almost no better opportunity Year after year, I find, let's say, the most gullible fish uh, on that early yeah. olive hatch. And I love it. I have I have so many great memories on all of our rivers. I could point to them, and every time I walk past them, I think about, oh, I had that day where it was snowing. Yeah. There's snowflakes in the air and yes. blue yes. olives in the air. And then yes. I get, yep. you know, I get these opportunities to fish over these trout that just seem so excited. And they are forgiving <laughs> on a very small bug. The only yeah. the only difficult part maybe is that they're small. They're like 18s, but that's okay. Yeah. Sure. What surprises me is how forgiving they will be, especially early in the season, 
about yes. the drift, whether it's perfect, it's just starting to drag and fish still eats it. I go, wow, that's nice. Do you think it's because it's been three months since they've started to eat flies on top and they haven't had, you'd say winter is a less pressured yeah. season for the most part. And yeah. so they're not tippet shy. They're uneducated and they're, they're hungry. They're having fun. They're like dolphins. I, I seriously think it's a, it, fun almost hmm. plays into it. <laughs> There's probably a good chance like, that in a lot of cases they're seeing it for the first time too. Right, right. Some yeah, of the, yeah, sure. somebody yeah. early or the, the youngest trout. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like you said, Bill, all they've done is eat mid, up top is eat midges, you know? And I just think they follow them to the up through the water column and they're excited about it. How much does the ideal water temperature play into it? You know, at that time, you have ideal water temps and and then the flow and you don't have the pressure, and it's like everything lines up. Mm-hmm. The, the, does all that contribute to the success we have with that hatch? So I think the water temperature does play a big role in it. Yeah. Um, like two weeks ago, it was doing this thing you were talking about. It was snowing. It was one of the best hatches I've seen. It was blanket. Every little back itty was full of olives. Nice. The fish were just like, nah, it's too cold. Ain't going up that high. Mm-hmm. You know. This time of year, I feel like I haven't fished dries. I've nymph fished all winter, and I really want to catch some fish on dries. And so I'd go to a, I, you know, I went to a pool, waited about ten or fifteen minutes, and they just would not rise. And the bugs were mm-hmm. coming off. It was like a blanket hatch for like an hour, and they were just not interested. And I think it was water temp, if I were to guess, because it, air temps were in the fifties, and the next day they were in the twenties. I've seen that a lot lately, Bill. I mean, they've been the olives have been on almost every day for five or six weeks and many days the trout just won't eat and I'm out there most days you know most people will tell you hey when you get the the drizzly the cloudy days those are your olive days now what I find is that they hatch almost every day but they seem to be more available Mm -hmm. to the trout or well the trout respond to them more on those cloudy days and you kind of addressed Mm -hmm. all that with the sun maybe it's that I've also heard theory that the olives get to the top and they dry their wings really quickly on those sunny and especially mm-hmm. little bit breezy days. The wings dry real quick, boom, they lift off. Yeah. And they're a small bug. I don't know, but maybe their wings dry faster somehow. I would say that's true for any hatch. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. The idea that they, you know, the oils and the liquids in their, in their wings are trying to dry out, I think that's true for our, any hatch we experience here. That's nice. So, yeah. But, yeah. but it could also be the case that we notice the excitement on the blue-winged olive because that might be the case that they do dry a little bit faster. And as a result, mm-hmm. the fish get used to reacting a little bit faster and with a little bit less apprehension than other yeah. hatches. So what about yeah. blue quills and quill gordons? You guys make much distinction there be- besides the size. I find them both to be a little bigger. Mm-hmm. But do you fish them differently? Do you find different response? And do you guys tie patterns for every single one of them? Right. Yeah. I don't. No. Me neither. I'm, I'm far more imitative than I am like an exact matcher the silhouette general body color and then and we can get into this a little bit more maybe but you know it takes a lot for me to commit to fishing dries and I think and I want to have the opportunities to fish dries but because I'm rarely going out with the sole purpose of fishing dry flies I want to see some commitment on behalf of the fish before I'm going to go there so when I do switch over to dries. I do have a couple patterns that I tend to gravitate towards. Um, do you guys have patterns that are, or like 
at least styles of patterns that you tend to gravitate towards if you're going to fish on top? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you, I think we're going to find as we rifle through some of these, uh, some of these insects. They, yeah, they carry over. For me, I don't have, you know, I really don't have just a blue wing olive imitation. I use a clink hammer, I use a puffy, and I use a parachute olive, whatever. A few styles yeah, yeah. and a comparadon. <laughs> okay, now all of a sudden yeah. I'm up, to, I'm up <laughs> yeah. to four. Yeah, I got one pattern. I fish a, I fish a comparadon, <laughs> and I tie it in every other size. So if I'll tie a comparadon. Starting in, at eight. Yeah, size yeah, eight. Starting at eight. That's, <laughs> That's the only size I've seen you fish. <laughs> They'll eat it. I will <laughs> make them eat it. <laughs> Just makes them angry. Yep. <laughs> I mean, if you were a fish and there was a size 18 blueing olive coming down the river and there was a size mm-hmm. eight comparadon, wouldn't you be like, it's just like, hey, well, do you want a chicken nugget or do you want a steak? No, I don't you know. You sound like a streamer guy. Yeah, if, yeah, it, right. if it only was like that, that'd be great. Just give them the biggest thing you can find. Like, oh, I'm going to eat that. That reminds me of the, of the cicadas. When the cicadas came, they had to be on the water for about a, at least a week. I'm going to say almost two weeks before the trout really started going, all right, uh, all right, I guess we can eat those. You know, they hadn't seen anything that big for 17 years around here. <laughs> As far like the blue quill and the quill gordon and the blue and yeah. olive, for the most part, I, I fish a comparadon and I tie like every other size. So I'll tie yeah. a 16, an 18, mm-hmm. a 20. Like most times I tie an 18 because it's kind of in the middle of the. Yeah, sure. Just fishing a simple comparadon. So Trevor's saying he's <clears throat> mostly a generalist and I know mm-hmm. I am and you're saying that. You know, I also fish a CDC and elk and an mm-hmm. X caddis. Let's yeah. talk about that. I mean, I fish those two as soon as the granome comes. For us, the granome is the first major caddis hatch. Coincidentally, today I saw the first real emergence of the granome on one of our favorite rivers as I was guiding. And I went, oh, forget mm. about the blue wings, guys. Here we go. Yeah, this is good stuff. Yeah, and there were some splashy risers. What do you guys do different? How does it change your game? What's your approach when you start to see granums? What do you expect? The granum hatch makes me think of the lead wing, the lead wing coachman wet fly. Nice. nice. When I first started fly fishing, that was one of the first hatches I hit that I found that pattern to be super successful in catching fish. Nice. I feel like any caddis hatch that you hit, you don't have to have the most perfect drift because the flies are kind of just emerging. They're dancing on the water. You don't need a pristine yep. drift to attract the fish. I think mm-hmm. you know, caddis hatches are always kind of my favorite because it, nothing has to be exactly mm-hmm. perfect because they don't they don't follow the rules like the sailboats do with the with the mayflies. <laughs> the mayfly sailboats. Graham hatch historically for me is always the most disappointing hatch. Really? Because on top, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. For on dry fly action. You know, the owls come off and you start to see rises and it's right. great. And then you get into the thick, thick, thick mm. random hatch where you see them line the banks, line the logs on rocks. And you're thinking, oh man, any second now it's about to yeah. go nuts. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't. So true. Um, so it's a tease for the dry fly angler. Uh, Austin, I've I've been there and had those struggles a lot yeah. with that hatch. And I find I find showing up before the bugs get active and a large emergence, there's a small window yeah. there to, to kind of pickpocket some fish mm. before there's too many naturals. Mm. Um, nice. And I found that to be, you know, a feed window on those bugs that can be productive, you know, if you're having issues with, with all the naturals. Yeah, nymphing them underneath before right. you're saying they get up to the surface too much. Yeah, that and you, you guys have seen it, right? There's always those 
first heads. You know, a lot of people want to say it's the small fish that first come up and Mm -hmm. it'll start eating. Mm -hmm. But, but having said that, if your Mm -hmm. goal is to, is to fish that elk hair on top, that there's that window, you know, right before things get real crazy and there's a lot of naturals on the water that you can, if you move and look for those splashy rises, you can have some success. Nice. Great point. So I'm kind of with Austin on being disappointed by the grano a lot of times. Uh, I love that hatch. Well, no, no. Again, I'm just talking on top. Shut up, Bill. <laughs> Come on, Bill. <laughs> hey, guy. Doing it wrong. <laughs> no, really, guiding through the years, people will say, there's flies everywhere in the air. There's flies everywhere and no fish are rising. Right. And you see mm-hmm. a couple one-timers, you know, they come up one. Yeah, one-timer, yeah. And I'll say, yeah, but, you know, underneath, hey, let's do these things underneath. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think we're going to find us with a lot of caddis as we talk through. For me, I don't often around here get a lot of uh, just real predictable, let's say, dry fly action on top. Now, I think when you get enough caddis on the water, we recognize that plenty of them get stuck in their shucks. As I read it, as I understand it, caddis get stuck coming out of their shuck a lot more often than the mayflies do. Mm-hmm. And so the caddis, let's call them cripples or emergers, you know, they're trying to come out. They look available to the trout because they are stuck, you know, and the trout will take advantage of that opportunity. Also, caddis go to the, to the bank side, but then they, they come back and they'll dap to drink. Many species of caddis um, will dap and get a drink. And that's how they'll live for a couple of days too. And so when they get a drink, if they're, and you've seen them bouncing up and down sometimes, um, I, you, you have to assume that some of them kind of, whoops, <laughs> I got stuck in the water. There, they're available mm-hmm. again. And then after they mate, we understand that the females, many of them, come and dap and actually slam their body against the water surface to dislodge those eggs. Now, some of those females actually dive to the bottom and lay those eggs. But those ones that are bam, bam, we've seen it. It looks like they're hopping, you know, but they're slamming their body against the water. Again, they're going to get trapped in the surface, and there's like a third opportunity, well, to be trapped in the surface. I go back to, for me, that CDC, an elk, or a puffy, or an X caddis, something like that, where the body's sitting flush, and you have maybe the things that look leggy, or oops, I got stuck in the water, and there yeah. you go. Those are my favorite caddis imitations, and I don't care if it's the granum or a tan caddis or something that hatches in the fall. For me, my strategy is almost always the same with those caddis hatches. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of times throughout the year that I don't do very well with like cased caddis patterns, but early in the year when you see those granums and sometimes olive caddises start, I have a lot more luck in that two-month period with cased caddis patterns than I would generally any other time. And and even nice. because I think that they are sometimes trout are keying on, on, on the pupa version of those flies because it's so much easier. I think that that's why a fly works a lot better in those two, three months or so. Yeah. I don't know if I've been lucky, but some of the rivers I fish have heavy caddis hatches. Uh-huh. And I feel like there are certain times of the year where I feel like they're almost clockwork where you can plan your day around, okay, I'm going to nymph fish and then I want to be in a skinny riffle by X time. Mm. Nice. And if I can be in that skinny riffle by X time and I know it's just going to, for an hour, I can sit there and dry fly, like I can fish dry dropper. And that's absolutely my favorite way to fish for caddis yeah. with a dry dropper. Like you're fishing a, an elk hair caddis in, I don't know, 16 mm-hmm. to 12, whatever it takes. And then I often fish like a hare's ear underneath as my, as my dropper fly, right? Whether it be a dark mm-hmm. one, a light one, somewhere in that 
um, that range and it just seems to do well. Or mm-hmm. like I said, like a lead wing coachman during the Granum hatch. Yeah. And again, when now, now that you have your dropper, you don't have to get deep, you know? And when you have these emergencies, yep. yeah. all these insects we're talking about, that's the point. Now they're coming up through the water column. So great. Here come the fish. It's kind of fun. Well, it's a lot of yeah. fun. Like you said, Bill, a dry dropper is a great way to approach it. Precision Fly and Tackle is a family-owned business with a passion for the outdoors and a sense of adventure. They are anglers who enjoy every moment spent on the water with family and friends. Precision Fly and Tackle carries the widest selection of Euro rods, reels, lines, leaders, flies, and accessories. From the beginner to the advanced angler, Precision Fly and Tackle can outfit every angler, no matter the budget. Visit them online at precisionflyandtackle.com. Then use code TROUTBITTEN10, that's the number 10, for 10% off your order. Gear up with Precision Fly and Tackle for your next adventure. This episode is supported by Freestone Coffee. You'll love sipping on it, guaranteed. Freestone Coffee is wildly delicious and dedicated to the sport of fly fishing. All Freestone Coffee is fresh roasted for your order, and 5% of proceeds go back to conserving the streams we love to fish. Freestone is just getting started, and they love your support. Head over to freestonecoffee.com and use code TROUTBITTEN for 15% off your order. That's code TROUTBITTEN for 15% off your Freestone Coffee order. Love it or your money back. So for strategy then, Bill or Dom, you could answer this. Uh, Dom, you mentioned that you don't have to go very deep any longer. Mm-hmm. Now, what what's a good expected depth to maybe catch fish coming up on emerging insects that you could have off a, a tag or your dropper? For me, I, I feel like the shorter the dropper, the better the contact. I, I like it close for the contact. I feel like when I fish caddis, I'm fishing it in water that's less than two feet deep. And so to put like a three-foot dropper on there, I'm going to get out right. of contact and I have a less chance of detecting yeah. the strike of something taking the dropper. Nice. So, Austin, I still meet a lot of these hatches, whether they be caddis or mayfly, with a nymphing presentation. Mm. And I will often go ahead and get one nymph low. And maybe that does match the granome. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a stonefly. I don't care. Maybe it's just yeah. a waltz worm or general. Okay. But then, well, like Trevor said earlier, I'm going to make sure I have my tag higher up. You know, instead of trying to ride both flies low like I do in the winter, now I'm going to try to ride that tag like mid-column. I might go 24, even 30 inches up. Totally yeah. depends on the water. Yeah. I'll start to, yeah. I love that three-dimensional idea. Like you yep. said, Trevor, mm-hmm. that's fantastic. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, mm-hmm. because of these hatches, many dimensions of our water are opened up. You know, it's not just low. So not just how we approach it with a dry fly and then a dry dropper. I love that, Bill. Great point. You, yep. know, you know, yeah, I don't like a lot of slop there either. But yeah, just a, in my nymphing presentation, that will change. If I don't see risers, I might see a lot of bugs, not see risers. And so I'm probably not going to fish on top. Yeah, great answers. I'm glad you both covered two sides of that. Uh, what about the Hendrickson's guys? I will say with that hatch, from my experience, the from a strategy, that's the first first time of the year where I truly see big mature fish starting to eat on the surface. And so I may actually walk a little more and do some uh, stalking on rise forms for the first time of the year from a strategy standpoint, if I'm looking to catch bigger fish. No, I'm with you on that. And that's, that's exciting. You know, you start to really see them. When you're saying you're stalking the bigger fish, let's say you're working a pool 
are you walking around that pool or, you know, covering a couple hundred yards of water looking for the big head? Yeah. So the strategy would be if I'm looking for big fish, right? Just kind of like a goal of mine to catch a 18 plus inch fish on a dry fly, knowing that some of those fish will, we've all experienced it, right? You have pods of fish, there's three to four in a glide and you catch the first one that's 12 inches and blow the hole up. If, if I take a deep breath and try to analyze those heads, I'll specifically target the one fish that I think is is the bigger fish out of out of that pod in thinking that I could blow it up after catching the first fish. Matt, I agree. I think if you're if your goal is to catch the biggest fish in that pool, yeah. you don't want to try to pick off every single little ten to twelve inch fish in that pool. Mm-hmm. The you know your best chance to catch that big fish may not be to to fish for them and you give them a little time to kind of start to feed and kind of start into a rhythm mm-hmm. and you know look for the biggest head. The one thing I'll I'll add into that is the biggest head always seems to be near stru- near bankside structure. That's, yeah, I'll hear that, yeah. especially for brown. Agree. Nice. What I hear us saying a lot about the Hendrickson is bigger trout. You know, that's yeah. my experience too. Then for us next around here, we kind of have what we call an olive caddis. I'm sorry, I don't know the, I don't think any of us really know the Latin names for these, <laughs> do you? Do you? Am I wrong? Nope. Anyway, it's an olive caddis. It has an olive body. For me, I approach it very similarly as, as the grano. Um, I'm going to move right through it. Unless you have an objection, I'm going to go to the sulfur. Go for it. Everybody loves a good sulfur hatch. Yeah. Right. Our biggest hatch around here, and I mean, people come from all over the world to fish not just here, but many different, you know, blue ribbon trout streams for a sulfur hatch. What's so special about it? I think it's the quantity of bugs. Yes. And yes. it's the, and it, the size. And it's, yeah. And the, and the fact that I think at that time of year, the water temperatures are at an ideal level for the fish to feed. And so there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of food in the system and yeah. there's a lot of aggressive fish that are, that have that ideal water temperature to feed. Yeah, I think that's the thing. They're right there at the peak of the season. They're in such great abundance. I do find, especially early in the sulfur hatch, oh, they'll they'll be hatching kind of all day, all day yes. long. There's a long yeah, yeah. emergence. And then, especially later in the sulfur season, let's say, of almost five weeks, maybe sometimes longer, uh, that spinner fall becomes super predictable. And it's late in the evening. And that is some of the best and most exciting fishing for me of the year on dry flies. I agree. I think there's two different types of sulfurs that hatch. I don't know. Oh, yeah. At least two. We always call them the big sulfurs and the small sulfurs. And so <laughs> There the, you go. Nice. And that's all. That's, that's all you all, need to know. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Big ones and little ones. Just match the Big size. ones and little ones. The big ones, you know, you can get the dumb fish to eat a 10. The big ones, some, you know, most times they're around a 14 or a 12. <laughs> but uh, like you're saying, that ha- the big sulfurs will start early in the day. And man, that's the, that's the ticket if you can hit that hatch. I know. And the nymphing is fantastic often too, you know, during that time. There's just a lot going on. A lot of these hatches overlap and we recognize that too. Now, as far as flies, do you guys have like Mm -hmm. specific flies for the sulfur hatch that you, what do you guys like? I love the compare done pattern. I know you guys have mentioned it, but I I do like that pattern a lot. Um, So I, for sulfurs, I have it anywhere from 16 to I think 16 and 14 are probably the most common sizes I fish it, but 
I fish that a lot. I do fish a parachute sulfur mm-hmm. at times, but mm-hmm. and if I I've, I've tied up a few clink hammers at times and fished them, but I I just have tied a lot more of the compare duns, so I fish them a lot more frequently. Yeah, I feel like the sulfurs are the one specific hatch that I have multiple nymphs that imitate them because they hatch for okay. a long time. The fish seem to be yeah interested in them. So like my favorites would be uh-huh. like a Polish woven fly that is like a, you know, a dark over a light color, because if you pick up the nymphs, hmm. that's what they look like. Or like a pheasant yeah, tail with fair. like an orange or a yellow hot spot. Yeah. I have like a, I, don't know, I would call it like a nymph, unweighted nymph. That's kind of, I use as an emerger. Because I feel like mm-hmm. if you, there are times when the sulfurs hatch when it's pretty cold out at times in our area. And so they'll get stuck in that mid water column. And so that kind of yeah. unweighted nymph, about six to eight inches into the film, it can be money some days. I've actually used the SOS nymph kind of platform and tied it in mm. a lot of colors that match our cool and sizes that match kind of our mm. different bugs. And I love yeah. that, that just structure and the shape and, Kind of the thin body with those kind of, and I'll I'll trim the wings pretty short, um, oftentimes just for my drifts. Um, but but I I love that nymph in all in my box. I've got it in a bunch of different sizes and and colors. Yeah, that's nice. I think as the sulfur hatch goes on, because they've seen it for so long, they start to really key on those sulfurs. And like you, Bill, I'll have specific patterns that really do. It's honestly, it's one of the only flies that I really do have multiple very specific um, patterns for them. And I do think it's because they see them for so long. And so that's underneath. I have, you know, kind of a dark sulfur nymph and even a light sulfur nymph. I don't use mm-hmm. it that much anymore. And then yeah. uh, up top, I definitely have some lighter colored things. My go-to is like a parachute Adams or an olive clink hammer. And that's across all these hatches we've already mentioned. I don't care if it's a uh, mayfly or a caddis, both those. I, I, I use both of them and the fish eat them. Also, I've already mentioned the, mm. the uh, CDC and Alka use that a lot. But as soon as those sulfurs roll around, I start to use comparadons that look as close to a um, sulfur as I, as I can get. Some of them, even with the, uh, the orange egg sac on the back, you know, you've seen yeah. that, the Comparadon. And yep. we should yep. mention, too, it, a lot of this has to do with what water type you're fishing. If you're fishing real mm-hmm. slow water, let's admit the trout are going to be much more discriminating and perhaps very picky. Oh, yeah. Uh, especially toward the end of the hatch about your fly. Good point. Hey, what about stone flies? Do you, you fish stones on top much? Bill probably does. <laughs> so uh, I've tried to fish, like, I've seen them hatch. And I've watched them hatch. And so I was like, oh, this is going to be fun. I'm going to fish like a size six dry fly. Like, you know, your typical Mm -hmm. like Western style dry fly in this area. Yeah. Um, I have not had any success on it. I think some of our, I don't know, golden stone fly falls into this for me. But there are certain Mm -hmm. larger bugs that we have here that hatch in smaller quantities Mm -hmm. that I find that you can occasionally goad the kind of (laughs) willing larger or maybe kind of mid mid to larger size trout into going after even when there's not an active hatch and i yeah so during the summertime or even during the late spring i'll use you know if i'm going to fish dry dropper and there's not any active hatch mm-hmm. um, sometimes as my dry fly i will use one of those rough patterns like i'll use a stimulator kind of mimicking a, a golden stone fly or i'll use 
something that mimics one of our larger drakes, you know, right on in the area. And, um, and I do, I get success on top, you know, like I'll sure in, Once in, in the while. absence of a hatch, right? Yeah. I'll have the yeah. occasional fish just crush that, <laughs> that top fly. Um, and I don't know whether they really truly think it's a golden stone fly or they truly mm-hmm. think it's a, you know, a gray fox or, or a slate drake or something like that. But, but it, at least it does, there is some success to be found there. I just don't find it in the midst of a hatch. That's the thing for me. I think with the stones around here, when I tie uh, a dry fly stone on of 10 or even a 12, but especially you go like to an eight, I feel like I'm hoping and mm. it, it's something, something special very well might happen. But we have to recognize too, so the stone flies don't emerge. Well, they crawl onto rocks. Mm-hmm. Or they crawl mm-hmm. onto, you know, logs, stream side logs or logs that are right in the stream. They need to crawl up on something to emerge. Yeah. They crawl, you know, they go up the tree limb or the, the rock face a little bit and they yep. break out of that shock. So they don't do what mayflies and caddis do, you know. And let's move on from the stonefly. And really next around here, we get a tan caddis that just lasts, for, it seems, forever. That tan caddis goes mm-hmm. all the way really into November. Yeah. And I acknowledge there are many, many species, I'm sure, of this tan caddis and even some different sizes. However, that tan caddis, let's talk about what a caddis does when it emerges. As I understand it, you know, we've all read it, it builds an air bubble around itself to help propel itself up through the water column pretty fast. And by the time it gets to the top, it's dry. It doesn't need to sit on the top like we say a sailboat, like a mayfly does, and dry its wings and hope nothing eats it. It just kind of boom right up through the surface. And you can often see this. If you have enough bugs, you just stare at the water. You'll just see bugs just sort of boom popping out. Anyway, that's what we have for our caddis, you know, sort of smashed in there with with the sulfurs and the stoneflies and before the March brown and all that stuff. They're there. It emerges differently than that stonefly. It definitely emerges way differently than the mayfly. I feel like caddis, you can often, like the mayflies, you're often wanting to have that dead drift mm-hmm. where any type of caddis pattern, there are days where you can throw that caddis and dead drift it and they won't touch it. But if you throw that caddis out there and you swing it or you skate it across the top yes. of the water, that can be a huge trigger at times. You brought that up earlier, Bill. The word kind of stuck out in my mind is like erratic. You know, the, the caddis will do faster and more unusual things than a mayfly. They're, they're less predictable. And so you can get away with more. They're perhaps more forgiving to fish. I'm going to make a mono rig plug here because I think fishing the mono rig with the dry dropper kind of style is a mm-hmm. really can be a really fun way to fish caddis right in a way that you can have control over that dapping motion or that yes. kind of dancing on the surface motion and so that is a really fun style and and the monorig really really sets you up you're going mm-hmm. there what what we call tight line dry dropper you yeah. got so it. you're tight essentially the dry dropper right rod tip to dry fly no line on the water tight to the dry you can yes like you said you can hop it you can dance it and yep mm-hmm. When you have Walk it through. a nymph underneath. Yeah. You got it. And usually I'll have like a holy grail or some hackled kind of pattern underneath. But that's a fun tandem to fish. It is. I love it. Like we said, a tan cat, it's just, I mean, it just keeps going. I'm like, oh, all the way through the summer. <laughs> For me, I feel like I, I could go out any morning in July and August and catch a fish or maybe a bunch of fish at 9, 9.30, 10 o'clock, 10.30, on a tan caddis, you yep. know, on most of our rivers, given average conditions. Yeah. 
I love. Dom, what size is that bug by that that time of year? I'm going to say 16 if I had to round it off. You know, sometimes a 14, sometimes an 18. But I think that's what we're all kind of saying here. As I understand it, most of you are really kind of are generalists. You don't care what the Latin name is, and you don't even necessarily care about the, the small intricacies of it. You know, what color is it generally? But especially, what size is it? If you're talking on top. Mm-hmm. underneath too right yeah, sure and i think the general rule is every hatch whether it's from the blueing olive clear down to the green drake it, it yeah whenever they're hatching they start big and they end small that's a good point you mean if the hatch goes on and on yeah and there are different species of there'll be different iterations of it or even like you know week one maybe the blueing olive comes out as a 16 and then you know the next you know, two weeks later, they're coming out as 18s. And then right. by the time that hatch finishes and it's done with that evolution, mm. you're down to a 20. And then, okay, well, blueing olives are now done, at least for that season. That's fair. That's definitely what happens with the sulfurs. And it's definitely what happens with that tan caddis. Hey, so what about the March browns? I think March browns, my, well, besides the olive, right? It's hard to pick a favorite. <laughs> but the Mar- I just love the March brown. They trickle off all day. Some of our favorite right streams. You can fish a 10 or a 12. Uh, it's one of the only, like, traditional Catskill patterns that I still, I still right feel. On, yeah. You know? And I just love how it kind of just rolls and bounces on the water. And I feel like it brings, well, kind of like the Hendrickson, it'll bring some of the bigger heads yeah. to the surface. Dom, you hit a couple good points there where you can fish a bigger fly. Mm. Um, more consistently, uh, Bill, you mentioned, you know, maybe it starts big and tapers off, but the, to me, the March Brown, I mean, the size consistency on the larger average, uh, mm. is, is pretty strong throughout the, the yeah. life of the hatch, yeah. um, which is just a fun change up to fish with. Yeah. And I think part of the March Brown is also sometimes like underlooked or maybe by the time we get in the hatch season, we get used to dry flies coming up and we're like, yeah, March Browns. Yeah. It's the next hatch, but mm. To me, I feel like it's so underrated. Yes. And we we talked a little bit on uh, like gloomy or rainy days. I have a, a great memory with Greg Hoover a number of years back when we were nice. on the water and it was overcast and misting and a, a slight drizzle all day long. And those mayflies were trying to emerge and they mm-hmm. get stuck. You know, they have those big wings, a larger fly. It yeah, takes them longer to, to dry out those things on their on their on their wings and you know, it's just a day of, of nonstop rising and nonstop mm. catching and releasing of fish. It's just yeah. such a such a lovely hatch to me. I think we're thinking about the same river. Yeah, I'm sure uh, we are. Uh, it's special on that river. Yeah. If and you hit it right, oh, man. It's like you're getting away with something. Yep. Yeah. See, I, I have the opposite feeling about the, <laughs> of course the really. March Brown. <laughs> well, that's Bill. Don't take that away from me. What don't you like about the March Brown, Bill? For the longest time when I first started fishing, I was like, those things must taste like garbage because I never see a fish <laughs> eat it on top. Oh, my <laughs> word. I liked what you said, Dom, about like uh, like trickling in throughout the day. It's because that's the, that's one of the flies that you can mm-hmm. maybe have in like a, a real yeah. poor day of fishing. And then all of a sudden, you've got something really special on your hands out of nowhere mm-hmm. at like two in the afternoon. It's one of the only, well, especially big flies that I will just feel confident and I can pr- just prospect. I don't even see any risers. I'm just going to prospect yeah. with the drive mm-hmm. for the next two hours. And I'll probably catch five or six pretty good looking fish too. Yeah. Know, pretty sizable I'm like fish. you too. I like the cat skill style for that I know. Uh, fly too. What yeah. is it about it? I don't know. I, I'm mm-hmm. sure. I think it's it a Humphrey thing right. for me. Maybe Greg yeah. Hoover told you to do yep. that. Is it that maybe that yep. it looks a little bit more like a, you know, like it's crippled a little bit more? 
I don't know. I feel like it rolls. Yeah. Know? Well, that's the thing is with a bigger fly like that, if you can if you can make something look a little bit more crippled because of what you were describing, Austin, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And the cat skill does yep, that really well. That's a good point. Sure. Now I've tried like parachute styles and I've even tried really big puffies during the uh, March Brown. And a puffy is really just dubbing on a hook and CDC wrapped at the head. And it just sits in there. And if anything's going to look like a cripple, to me, that's what a puffy looks like. You know, mm-hmm. like, oh my, I'm just stuck in a film and I just got legs and wings, you know, just kind of in, <laughs> in the film. Uh, to me, that, that Catskill style that we're talking about, it sits there like, like it's just ready to take off. And not necessarily mm. that it's a, even all that available to the trout. They just seem to get excited. Yeah. I think they get excited about the size. I think so too. You guys, you know, you're fortunate out there. You rambled off all the different uh, mayfly species Mm -hmm. that have hatched up until the end of May. And out here, that March brown Mm. is one of the – we have our olives. We have our giant Mother's Day caddis. It's the same thing as the Mm granum. But then we're kind of left with that March brown uh, as being Mm -hmm. the key – like the the major – mayfly hatch for the really? month of may um yeah i mean nice. we just don't get a ton of mayflies out here so that's one of my m- favorite hatches and it's actually a size smaller than the bugs back home no so kidding. you tie it a size smaller similar dubbing um but that can really get the fish pumping on mayflies out here before runoff hits awesome that's neat that's one of the things to talk about and when we get to the end here i really want you to talk about uh you know things that we've definitely missed talking from our Eastern perspective and you have both. Uh, Yeah. It's the interesting point there that all your stuff kind of happens later. You know, we're just getting olives right now. Really? Yeah. And so we've had them for uh, five to six weeks and we're kind of, I'm not going to say done because you know, our olives can really go all the way through the season. But the major hat to the olive is about to be taken over by the grano. So after the March Brown around here, we have a gray Fox. I'm going to skip over it. I, I mean, if I see it, I match it, you know, with the size. Anybody else? It's, it's, yeah, nothing different. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like we, that's no, good. And it's not like we ignore these bugs. Like, I want to disagree, but I can't. And we're looking for them and we're ready to match them and, and not just on top, but underneath and recognize that they're there and you try to probably eating them and try to adapt anyway. Our next major thing that happens is the green drake. Mm. And for here, people will come from all over the world to fish some of the green drake hatches on a couple of our favorite streams. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about the green drake, guys? Mm. It's fun. It's overhyped. Yeah, well, that's the yeah. that's part of the thing is I think the misconception is that no matter what, when you come to fish the green drake hatch, you're going to get to tie on these negative two size flies for big mouth <laughs> trout. And negative two. Negative two. Yeah, well, that's just Imaginary not always numbers. the case, you know? Like, we've always, like, it's awesome when you, when you get into that and you have these huge flies coming off and trout that's are rising to them. That's so fun. But a lot of the time, if you tie on something like, like 10, 12, maybe, like, you'll, you have a little bit more success usually. Well, and also, the fish are really so imprinted with the sulfur still that they're preferentiating mm, eating that's a good point. those and both underneath and on top in the midst of mm. either large coffin flies just sitting to be eaten or, you right. know, whether they, yeah, just kind of fascinating to me that they can leave such available protein yep. and go for still the sulfurs or, you know, mm-hmm. even other bugs. But it just goes to show you here in this region and in this part of the country, how 
wealthy we are with bugs. Yeah. And that's where this kind of like the whole conversation around hatches for us as we're all talking about it is it can be maddening if you try to focus in on it so much because the trout are going to tell you kind of what they what they want to eat mm, what they want to eat given day it reminds me of earlier i said about the cicadas it's like they have to see something that big for a little while mm, before they yeah. go all right, right i guess we'll eat it i guess that's food <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> i'm sure um, someone else has eaten this snap by now so and they haven't right. died and yet, the green drake really only hatches in one part of the stream for, you say, a week maybe? Ten days yeah. at the mm. most? Yeah. So for us, again, these green drakes on a couple of our favorite streams, they will trickle off all day. And uh, mm-hmm. you can kind of fish them like a March Brown hoping trout. will. It's just not as reliable as that March Brown prospecting. And then what we're really looking for is like what Trevor said, that coffin fly, which is the mm-hmm. yeah. green drake spinner right? And boy, yeah. I wish it happened before dusk, but it doesn't. You know, right. if you're lucky, that spinner fall will happen while you can still see things. Usually yeah. not. <laughs> Usually it's after real dark. Most people go go home, but if you, if you want to stay out there and just kind of listen for the slurps, if you're in that kind mm-hmm. of water, it's, it's a lot of fun. Dom, having said that, that's one of the things uh, that I miss the most about mm. back east is I can't tell you how many, if you've never sat at dark on yeah. some of those limestoners and fish spinners until yeah. 1130 or midnight, you're really missing out on an yeah. epic experience. I mean, yeah. it's, go late. you can, yeah. it is so fun. I mean, I, I used to camp up there for, you know, 10 mm-hmm. days every May and I, I spent a ton of time chasing that hatch and you had mentioned that it's unlike the March Brown, and I agree. I think one out of 10 years, we hit an emergence from the adults during the day, and it was as good of dry fly fishing as I had on that river ever, right? But nice. it, it wasn't consistent. But when you no. got into that spinner fall, I mean, I don't know. You don't even know how you're catching fish sometimes. Right. I mean, you're just, <laughs> yeah. you're just throwing yeah. it out there at those yeah. rise forms, and you can barely make them out. And you catch fish. I mean, it, it's it's a hoot mm-hmm. doing doing it doing it ever, like that out there. You ever use the uh, glow in the dark spinner from uh, Jonas Price? Has them over at the Feather Dome. No, no, I never. Oh, we never dude. did, man. We we get a lucky pretty good idea. Just, you try to look at those flat poles and look for those right. yeah. those, and you'd be surprised at what you see once you're. I mean, I don't have to tell you guys. You guys night fish all the time, but you can see yeah. pretty good out there at times. No, you can. Yeah, um, yeah. you get the light so in the right place, and you can really right. Yeah, us it's night fishermen, we're good. We're hey. I'll go in at dusk. Most people are serious. They kind of coming out like, well, they didn't, the spinners didn't fall in time. Nah, you go in. Not yet. Night, right. Night fishermen are ready for that. And right. honest to God, some of my best night fishing nights have happened around that green drake time and sometimes just after. Mm-hmm. You think it's just because they're looking up earlier than later? Exactly. Mm. I do. I think it kind of gets them conditioned to like, you know what? There's some big bugs around here. For me- yeah. Green drakes kick off the night fishing season. Kicks off the real success. <laughs> there you go. Hard yeah. to be successful before that. We night okay. fish all year. We just night catch in the summer. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Thank you, green drakes. There you go. <laughs> the western green drake, the one thing it doesn't have, it, it hatches a lot later. It's a lot smaller. And it doesn't have that, um, I, I sh- I'm not 100% sure, but you don't hear about the coffin fly out here. Really? You don't hear about that big hmm. spinner. Um, it's not a sought after thing. The, the, huh. the hatch is, but there's no, no real talk about a spinner fall. Huh? Is that because the bear will eat you if you stay out after dark? 
That's why you're always taking that chance. One of the big things about the green Drake hatch, I think, is that just they start to see it's kind of the start of seeing more larger things happening underwater. And so mm-hmm. I've found that when the green drakes start, things that aren't even mayflies are start to work really well. Like stoneflies start to work really, really well mm-hmm. right around green drakes. I mean, they work mm-hmm. beforehand too, but I'll see like when, mm-hmm. when green drakes really get going, trout really key in on bigger stoneflies than normal. And I think it's just nice. because they're seeing larger things happening in the water around them. That's a good point to reiterate. We're talking as if it goes from March brown to green drake and whatever, mm-hmm. and a tan caddis before. No, no, no. There's so much overlap here. Mm-hmm. And again, mm-hmm. it's not really our goal tonight to educate everyone about, you know, right. the hatch charts. Go find the hatch charts and then talk to talk to people that are in the know, I suppose, in your area. You're going to find out about the specifics of your area. Hey, for us, though, after the green drake, we have a brown drake. It's there. You know, it's not a big deal necessarily <laughs> for us. Hey, brown drake, you know. Hey, you know? guy, we like you. <laughs> we have a light Cahill. Now, that's often I'll be like, hey, what's that, sul- what's that leftover yeah, sulfur what's doing? That sulfur? It's, a, right? it's a big sulfur. It's a little different color. I know, exactly. I'm like, wait, it's like July. It's August. I'm, <laughs> well, what's up with that big sulfur? Nah, it's a late, light Cahill, I suppose. <laughs> I suppose. Uh, we fish them. For me, I'm going to, honestly, like I don't carry specific flies for them. I kind of get my sulfurs back out, and they are some of my bigger sulfurs. Also, I mean, on that same river we were just talking about, I find like number 20s sometimes, and I'm going to call them light Cahills. You know, they're not like white mayflies, not, not the big ones. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. they're, they're tiny. Anyway, you got, you know, we're prepared for all of that with really our general patterns. And I want to bring this up after, you know, the green Drake, a lot of people put the fly rods away. Seriously. A lot of our locals here are like, okay, mm. that bug season is over. Well, we just said, you kind of got the brown Drake and the light Cahill. Obviously that, that, that tan caddis just keeps going. But for me, my favorite dry fly season is terrestrials. Splat. I mean, yeah. like, I, I love just prospecting yeah. with a parachute ant all day long. It's, it's when fun. I, summertime, yeah, summertime, late June, especially early July, all the way into, I'm going to say early October, is when I fish dry flies just the most. Some days just continuously, not even throwing a nymph on. How do you guys feel about, like, terrestrial season? Mm-hmm. I love it. I'll say it's my favorite to fish with a, uh, with a mono rig. Really? And that's that's just because it's really fun to like, if you can just get a little bit of a tuck cast and kind of hit that fly pretty hard on the water, it's really fun to just follow that up immediately with and keep all of your line off the water. Mm. On a dry? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting super close. Yeah, just yeah. give it yeah. that splat. Pretty close. Like 30 yeah. feet at the most, right? Yeah. Mm. Like Tenkara. Tenkara on a, on a fly rod. That's right. right. <laughs> Seriously. That that's the time of year when I, I I will often just go out with fly line because I'm like okay mm-hmm. I'm gonna me too uh, interesting opposite yeah because I'm like okay there's a there's a good chance that I'll fish terrestrials and I'll just go find a big pool right. and I'll just methodically slowly work my way through that pool and throw ants and beetles and green yes. weenies and just just work it slow and there's just something fun about uh, often yeah. the water's really low and clear and so just mm. watching that ant or beetle hit the water you see that dark shadow dart out from the bank and I just eat it. it it's just it's it's addicting it's the same here bill it, it's almost like 
So in the wintertime, we acknowledge there's very, very few dry fly opportunities. And we're nymphing and we're getting low, like Trevor said much earlier. In the summer, it's like the polar opposite, man. I'll often do what you said, Bill. Just fly line for me as a George Harvey leader. And I, sometimes I don't do any nymphing for weeks at a time because I just love that opportunity to believe that every cast, that I'm just prospecting good-looking areas, water's low, water's clear, like you said. I love it. And for me, it's a parachute ant. You could pick your beetle or ant, whatever works for you. And, and your area, you know, whatever they're seeing the most. Yeah, we'll chime in with the, you know, out here, the terrestrial things are obviously a, right, a big thing. And we, you add in the, um, yeah, we have cinnamon ants and we have beetles, but the hoppers are what, what really fires people up out here right? and create, creates sweet. six weeks of, of really good fishing, usually mm. starting sometime in mid-August. And, cool. um, and it's just like any hatch. I mean, it starts off big. You know, the Keller formations usually, you know, it can go from green to tan. And and, mm-hmm. and that is one particular hatch that I've dealt with where I believe it or not, of all things, they get specific on on body Keller. You know, you can maybe start the season with a general pattern, but if you really want to get into fish, you got to be dialed in with the with the size and the Keller that those those hoppers are if you want to consistently catch fish out here um, in the summer, especially out of a drift boat. That's something I'm jealous of is those hoppers. Yeah. We just don't have them here. They, they, we don't have enough. I've fished plenty of hoppers wishing that they would respond like that. I remember being I remember being out there with you, Matt, and we were fishing and throwing the hoppers, and it was just something different and cool. And yeah, I remember the one day you're like, oh, we got to go downriver, you know, 10 miles next float. My buddy said they're cutting fields and they're pushing hoppers into the river, which like you didn't, you wouldn't think of that. And that's a, that's a really cool like aspect we just don't have around. Here. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the farmers cut and those hoppers just go barreling into the Creek when that hay comes off. And if you get into, if you can time things right, I mean, it's crazy. The action mm. can just be crazy. I, I, you know, outside of like a cicada, right. Salmon fly, there's something about that hopper eat and that is just like vicious and angry yeah. and and it, and it's addicting for sure. So Matt, you, you brought up the salmon fly. It's something I want to touch on because it's another thing. Like hoppers, we don't we obviously don't have salmon flies out here. Mm-hmm. When does that happen? How is that different than the hopper? Is it is it super similar? What? Tell us about that. So the salmon fly starts in in this area around mid May. And you can fish it effectively all the way until the second week in July if you know where to go. So the hatch kind of water temperature is so important here. Not all the all the streams are you know the same water temperature at the same time because you got varying levels of uh, elevation. You have tailwaters. You have valley streams. So that hatch happens you know at different times all over the place. But it is. I've been fortunate to experience the cicada hatch in yeah. PA. And yeah. it's like that. I mean, you get it every year. That's and, yeah, yeah. That's why I'm jealous, man. Yeah, and great. it is, and it's exciting, yeah. and you know it's gonna it's mm-hmm. gonna pop, and and you can just blind cast that thing and cover as mm-hmm. much water as you want in the banks in the middle of the river. It doesn't matter. I mean, right. you, you can just fish it, and you, and I try to fish as much as I can, and and there's a reason it's as popular as it is because mm-hmm. when you, when you get it and you hit it right, you want more. And and we're <laughs> yeah. lucky to to mm. be able to have it the next year. You know, it's going to hatch. And yeah. some years, you know, it burns up river quicker than others. But if you get good water and good 
um, good temps, uh, you know, you can, you can have a heck of a week out on the river and my, my brother still plans his trip every year around ever since I moved out. So yeah, why not? Right. (laughs) That's sweet. uh, Yeah. I do wish we had that. Hey, so, uh, so we got the, uh, terrestrials, right. And we said that, and then for us, we have kind of two more summer hatches, let's say and a slate Drake. We should address that. Oh yeah. Um, go ahead. Oh, I like that slate Drake. I know. Yeah. That's one of my, you probably I, fish it with a Comparadon on I top, do. don't you? So, so if you haven't, <laughs> oh, yeah, he does. if you haven't figured out my pattern yet, I fish a Comparadon mm. in size like 20 <laughs> to size mm, eight. eight, maybe six. Yep. And it just depends. Size on the, eight is bushy too. I know. I think, I think yeah. I'll float some champion championship. Uh, <laughs> it's a champion. Floater. <laughs> it is. It's true. Bill is so, the only person that I know that uses a Comparadon as a dry dropper dry. Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah. It doesn't really have great enough buoyancy, in thing. but, but heck, if you put it, if you time like Bill does in the sizes that he does and it works, you just can't argue with it. Go ahead. We, we, uh, about the slate Drake. Yeah. The slate Drake. I think what was it last summer I fished with Trevor and Austin and I was, and you know, there were some bugs hatching. So I was like, ah, yeah. I caught it. I caught fish on nymphing in the morning. And so That's I great. went, I went to the size eight compared done and I fished it and I caught fish on it the, that evening. And we got back to the store mm-hmm. and everyone else or not to the store, but the, to the parking lot. And everyone was just like talking about like, Oh, it was a tough night. I'm That's like, right. and I, I said, Oh, I fished a size eight compared on there eating it well. And everyone just like looked at me <laughs> in the parking lot, like, ah, oh, this guy's full of crap. Yeah. But like, that's what I fished <laughs> and that's what I got fish on. There it is. So what about that nymph? It's one of the only, um, patterns that I ever tied like completely different specifically like, there was a point where we were trying mm. articulated patterns yeah, just it's, because of how that swam yeah. and, it's kind of big and too. swung it yeah to to mimic and maybe even a little marabou i mean you don't see yep. a ton mm-hmm. of just classic right. nymphs with marabou to imitate that but um bill on our one of our waters we like to fish back in western pa that's a prominent hatch and it was yeah. fun to try to match that with different nymphs it's almost like, you know, you've got a nymph slash like something that looks like a minnow swimming through the water. Mm. And so a lot of times they wouldn't eat the dead drift. They would more, more frequently eat something on a swing or like mm. if, even if you would like twitch it, like, you know, you're in the middle of your drift and you would twitch right. the fly and put some animation in either the fly or the the dropper of that, that dry fly, they would, it it would be the trigger to get them to eat a lot of times. Especially in skinny, skinny water. You know, because that's where they do emerge. And here you are in in some of the lowest water conditions of the year. And some of the biggest bugs, some of the biggest bugs are emerging in the, some of the skinniest water. And it's unusual because everything else around is pretty small. You know, even the caddis by that point are 16s and 18s. Those tan caddis, it'll keep going. And here come the trichos sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Coinciding. Um, and they're tiny. We'll talk about those in a minute. And I, I, I just think the fish get excited about it. Um, it's, it is, it's a bigger food form. It is very predictable and you'll see them. You'll see those little shucks on the rocks yeah. and you go, Ooh, it's, it, it's ISO time. And there, that's a good spinner fall too. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. It's a, it's yeah. a really good spinner. Fall it often match. seems in good spinner fall. I think the fisherman means condensed kind of, they all, all the spinners fall and predictable. At once. And yep. There you go. And that's what makes it predictable. And it can be day after day, usually right at, you think it's right at dusk for you? I mean, yeah, is that what you see? Yeah. So day after day, it'll often be right at dusk. And here, all the isos, isonicheas is what we're saying, that mm-hmm. came off during the day, all of them are like, oh, 
let's all mate and then just fall right before dusk. Fantastic. Thank you. So a lot of the mayflies around here are like specific time windows where it's like, okay, sulfurs are hatching the last hour of the day or the last 30 minutes of light where I feel like the Isonychia or Slate Drake is a slow, a slow burn throughout the day. And so the fish are just constantly used to see them. So they're, they're just, they're one of my favorite exploratory patterns. If I just want to throw, uh, that ISO dry throughout the day because right on. they'll slowly see it. Bill, just to wrap that up, that that very much matches your strategy for how we've acknowledged that you like to fish, and some of us do too, to cover a lot of water. And so if you're prospecting, you know, one or two casts in a great spot, okay, I don't find any hungry ones for, for slate drakes. Next spot, next spot, covering water. Oh, and yeah. when you're prospecting, and again, we're saying not to fish into risers, but just throwing it into likely water, prospecting, that's the thing you got to do. You just got to keep covering water. It won't work if you're just trying to, you know, yeah. hit the same undercut bank for a half hour. Nope. Go, good point. You know, go on. Move on. One one other interesting piece before we move on from that hatch is it's the only spinner fall I've found where uh, not a like a traditional rusty spinner body yeah. covers the the spinner. Uh, uh, I, I usually tie hmm. a purple body. No that kidding. purple hue body mm. that really imitates that spinner fall. Um, so if you get bored, Dell, and want to want to throw in some new spinners, try <laughs> try the purple body one. I've got some purple body wet flies for that purpose that that have fished well. Go. Nice. Sometimes, yeah. I, I mean, I said in the intro, being super specific on the pattern is not all that important. And yet, what you guys are talking about right there, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Sometimes, sometimes, like two or three, maybe four. At the probably at the most five times a year, I'll find like, oh my, that was it. It was the yeah. pattern. You know, it was that very specific purple body that really turned them on. You kind of got to love those moments. You it, do. In a way, you have to hate those moments because you go, sure. now uh, I got to tie a dozen every, of those. Now. I wish oh, it wasn't that way. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then you're always wondering. You got to love it. Hey, sort of the next major thing that happens is the trichos, right? I'm pretty sure we will do a uh, full podcast on the trichos. I, I love trico fishing. We should get Greg Hoover on, Austin, to talk yeah. about, right? Yeah, we should. Trichos. But sort of briefly, how's it change your fishing, guys? So how do you approach the trico hatch? Uh, I hate my life. Because <laughs> the tiny little buggers. Oh, I hate yeah. those little guys. I, I, tie, I tie the flies, you know, 22s, 24s. The older yeah. I get, the more I tie the 18s. It's like a double, like a double trico. Oh, double trico. That's cheating, man. And Hey, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, I tell you, it, it is predictable, and it is first thing in the morning right when you get to the river. And so. Often. Often, yeah, yeah in, in the summer months. And so what it, you're looking for is the spinner fall, yeah, you should say. Exactly, right? Not the yeah. dun. Emer- supposedly, the dun emerges at night. And we can't see it. And when you get there, like you said, a lot of times it's first light. Sometimes it'll be as late as 10 or 11. The water temperature, or no, the air temperature, I think, is 72, 74. I think that's what uh, George Harvey wrote about. There's a certain air temperature where the spinners will fall. And some days they don't, yeah. and some days they do. Do you guys get specific on the on the body on that spinner? What, what do you do, black or white? Both. And sometimes green. Yep. <laughs> you know. It's such a tiny little thing. You're like, it can't really matter. No, it seems to. Again, though, we're fishing, well, I'm fishing softer water at that point. You know, if they're getting real picky on the color, 
I'm not fishing it in the heavier water and the years they're not coming up for the spinners and that kind of stuff anyway it is for me the most technical dry fly fishing that i get to do all year i, I kind of love it and like you say you kind of hate it you get so yeah. many refusals they come up to your size 24 26 and they go nah, nah. i'm not gonna eat it <laughs> they'll give it a good look and just knows it turn down and and as that trico hatch goes on sometimes clear into october that's late but they just get more and more picky about it it's prevalent out here too i mean it starts happening around july on a lot of the creeks out here late july on some of the famous uh tailwaters yeah they get prolific hatches i mean people people come out to experience that um and it's similar tactics similar um you know there's something there's definitely a a following on that hatch and I, I can see how people get addicted to it yeah for sure and some of the best dry fly fishermen i know are as you said addicted to that trico hatch they look forward to it it is predictable it's almost day after day you're looking for that spinner fall probably within 20 minutes of where it was yesterday it is i mean it's, it's challenging it's fun i wouldn't want to start out with it <laughs> you know i wouldn't yeah. recommend a dry fly angler so that's <laughs> Fish trichos. <laughs> intro to fly <laughs> fishing is not trico hatches. No, it's really not. And so you accept that challenge eventually and you go, ooh, this is tough. I like it. Hey, let's, uh, you know, let's move through it here. And for me, the trico really kind of signals uh, some kind of conclusion to these major hatches that happen. Now, obviously, throughout the fall, really the next one in our area that happens is a big white mayfly. It's what, 10, size 12 maybe? Yeah. Often those, <laughs> I've had better fishing with the white mayfly on, on smallmouth bass rivers. I don't know why, but it's the bigger freestone <laughs> rivers that are too warm to hold a lot of wild trout. These fall caddis, boy, you can, you know, you can say October caddis and put all kinds of names to them. For me, uh, my caddis strategy, which we've kind of talked about, doesn't really change. You know, and I'm going to encounter those, that tan caddis, like I said, it'll go all the way through October. When I find the caddis, I'm ready. I'm good. And my strategy doesn't change. What about you guys? Do you find anything special throughout the fall with the caddis? Or- as far as like the, the, the white mayflies, I've occasionally hit them. I feel like they're a lot of times, you know, I, I'm scared of the dark. So a lot of times they, they hatch <laughs> after dark and that's more you guys' <laughs> speed. Where, uh, you you know, I'm more the tan caddis guy that wake up early in the morning and get it at like 7 (laughs) a.m. I've fished the nighttime white fly a few times. Really? Yeah. On a local river. And I've had some success with it, but I I don't know. It was very different than what I'm used to when I fish at night. So Mm. I, and I wasn't super confident. I think I just like fishing at nighttime. I'd want to know the sections that I'm fishing a little bit better than I did when I fished Mm -hmm. it. But it was fun to try something different. I used like a, it was like a Royal Wolf, but just a white one. Mm. Um, so you're fishing the Dunn, not a spinner. Yeah, yeah. Right, gotcha. And it was just something that was visible enough that I could pick it out. They should be more forgiving then on that Dunn. Than, I think you know, so. The spinners, like yeah. dead drift, pure, pure dead drift. Yeah, right. that makes sense. Yeah. You could maybe even throw wets like that, you know, a bigger wet. Ah, oh, well, bigger, yeah. whatever, size eight or 10, wet, yep. even swinging through. That should be yeah. a good night strategy. Hey, we yeah. got to do another yeah. night fishing podcast. I know. you. I'm just getting excited thinking about it. Bill's not invited. He's afraid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> afraid of the dark. I'm an early man. And then Matt's not invited because, he, well, he has grizzly bears out there. So Come on. Give me a break. That's right. 
We have coyotes. It's near yeah, coyotes, wolves. Coyotes. They'll eat you alive. You got to watch the coyotes. <laughs> you uh, mountain lions. You, you said you said that the Trago Hatch kind of signifies the end of major hatch season back there, and I would say For that us. the en- end of the hopper season out here mm. is is kind of when the first frost hits, and and things kind of transition. And as far as the the caddis yeah. and the strategies, we still have caddis that that happen out here, and a lot of yep. a lot of times I'll find myself going into the park into Yellowstone and a lot of folks mm-hmm. like to to chase the the lake fish that that enter mm-hmm. the system system up from Hebgen Lake or Shoshone mm, yeah. Lake and they don't you know they're not feeding like a normal freestone fish right they're lake fish they have different tendencies um and so I tend to go to the streams that may not have uh lake fish and I'll hit with the the white miller caddis and that's that's the one mm. caddis i had to learn out here that we don't get back east and it's actually kind of a newer species you can read all about it it's it's super interesting it's a newer oh. newer caddis species but um a lot less pressure anyway those fish tend to really key in on on that white miller in the fall out here and you can have some good days prospecting with a you know just like a white elk hair caddis um and that can be super fun, kind of re- uh, revitalize your dry fly fishing after it's it's kind of gone dormant toward the end of the, the, the grasshoppers. It kind of kicks back in with that white miller. Is that different than your spruce moth, Matt? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that spruce moth tends to happen sometime early, uh, late July, early September. Oh, okay. and, and, and that's kind of heavy pine forest streams mm. uh, where lodge poles line the banks. But boy, that's a what a weird. That's like a weird hatch, uh-huh. right? One of yeah. a specific area hatch, but yeah. really, really fun. And and fish tend to go nuts for that as well. But it's mm. similar. That ties similar. The white okay. white miller and the spruce moth. Neat. So I said earlier that uh, you know the olive for us really kicks things off, and it kind of winds things down. The olive will go clear into November, even early December. I've seen decent olive hatches. And like we said, it'll get smaller as the year goes on. Um, The one thing we really haven't talked about, let's just do one more thing about midges. And I said that tricos can be some of the most challenging dry fly fishing experiences of the year. But so can midges. You know, you see fish rising, you go, oh, no. (laughs) They're eating a midge up top. You know, and so for me, I really focus on those midges in the winter. But man, we can, we acknowledge those midges can happen throughout all, I mean, all of the other hatches that we talked about. You could be thinking, oh, they're coming up for sulfurs. <laughs> nope. It's actually a midge that most of those fish are coming up for. Anything you guys do, you want to talk about uh, when you see, when you're sure that they're eating midges, whether that's on top or underneath. I, I put a Griffiths gnat on and try to catch them. Same. That's like that's that's like my only pattern that I carry for midges. I know, at least the the dry fly. I second that. Griffiths dusted up top of it. Yep. A third that. <laughs> We're all nobody wants to deal with midges. <laughs> no. Four. I'll take the cluster. <laughs> Dude, I I'll take a midge. I'll yeah. take a midge all Go. day. And Go. and in the and I think I alluded to this earlier, but in the winter, I, I can go to the stream with the you know Griffiths gnat tied to my my leader and that's all yeah. i can i have to fish all day to rising fish i mean that's it's cool in the in the dead of winter i mean 15 degrees out 
one of my favorite times a year. And, and I will say I would much rather fish that than the pseudo Cleons, which are the annoying B, BWOs uh, in the fall that are like size yeah. 26s. Yeah. They're very prominent out here. Yeah, they certainly the shouldn't count as. But I hate them. <laughs> yeah, I hate them. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're midges. But the the fish crush them. Right. Yeah, the fish right. crush them. But you yeah. can't. I mean, it's so hard to imitate them. You know, it's it's brutal. Yeah. I that hatch. I hate that hatch. And I, I've hit that hatch on some big, like uh, eastern tailwaters, and the fish were just. Yeah, you're fishing twenty twos. And the fish are all sitting in tail outs of six to 10 inches of water and you're trying not to spook them. And then, yeah. So as far as like presentation, when you're mm-hmm. presenting the fly to the fish, how are you doing that in most hatches? And does it matter? You mean across all the hatches that we've talked about? Yeah. Like I guess I have diff- mayflies. I kind of have one strategy and caddis. I have a different meaning like, and you mean on top? Yes, on top. So on top, most mayflies or midges, I'm trying, most times I find myself presenting the fly in a downstream method than where I'm standing. Where caddis, a lot of times, I'm fishing upstream. Yeah, I mean, I, nah, I fish everything upstream. Yeah, that's. I would agree with Dom. I do. I try to get dead drifts on everything, and then I will uh, – sometimes I'll mend to hop a caddis. That's about the only kind of variation I'll do. And now, when I'm fishing underneath, I find that I'll be trying to get dead drifts, especially with mayfly imitations underneath, you know, when that, when that's going on across all these hatches we've talked about. And then when caddis are hatching and literally hatching, I could see them in the air, then that's really the time when I will most go ahead and swing my nymphs up, let them – you know, lysing lift, whatever you want to call it, everything's swinging out, maybe even crossing current seams. Yeah, because we've acknowledged the the caddis are kind of the most athletic mm-hmm. of the insects, yeah, that's... and they will do unpredictable things. That's about, you know, those are my strategies. Those sound good. The, I'll add in one more. I mean, for terrestrial fishing, I tend to do a plop, uh, really mm, trigger nice. good point. bank stuff, right? I yeah. mean, that's one of those times a year where you kind of, change it up a little bit where I'm looking for a, a ferocious, you know, mm. plump because those fish, especially out here with the hoppers, yeah. they react to that, that yeah. plop and reactions. And, and that's kind of a, sure. a cool thing to throw or to change it up from all the caddis fishing you've been doing and the mayfly fishing you've been doing. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, I'll do both on an ant. Some days yeah, I said, I like, the, I love my parachute ant. I think it looks like a beetle too, the way I tie it. Fair enough. I can plop it yeah, with a certain type of cast. And I can just lay it down nice and easy and then nice soft fall. Some days they're on that plop. Some fish over there on that right side bank are on a plop. And the fish on the left side bank is eh, maybe he wants it more. Uh, Just kind of gliding down. It's certainly not the same. And so that's kind of what we've talked about here is it's really nice to have your perspective there, Matt. You know, you're seeing different things than we do. Uh, All that midge opportunity that you have all the way through the winter we don't necessarily have that, not that predictable anyway. And yet we have some of the bigger mayflies and more mayfly species than you do out there, you know. Anything else, guys? I just think, you know, listening to the introduction and then our discussion, I think it's kind of funny to hear a little bit of the dichotomy between our statements about like, hey, you know, it doesn't really matter knowing the specifics about these bugs. And then mm-hmm. we all like talk about some of the specifics of these <laughs> bugs, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I think I think it's just kind of 
what neither is right and neither is wrong in what yes. we're saying. What we're just kind of pointing out is that mm. with certain bugs, it does seem to matter. With certain ones, it doesn't. And sort of, it's really easy to get lost in the weeds if you want to on Latin names of mayflies and the specific number of bands on the leg of this particular <laughs> mayfly. Yeah. And yet, only some things matter to our trout. And I think wherever you live, finding out what things matter and what things don't is kind of the key to having fun fishing hatches. And if it's not fun, you shouldn't be doing it. Um, and, and for all of us, I think we find that it's fun to think outside the box a little bit to, um, to take a little bit more of a broad and overarching approach rather than a knocking our heads against the wall trying to be too specific but yeah no i just kind of enjoyed that that play throughout the night as we talked mm -hmm. about different aspects of this brought me back to just how much fun i had when i first started out fly fishing trying to learn all this right i mean it's so extensive from the beginning of the hatch season to the end and the different mm -hmm. sizes and 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 instead of trying you know to make it overcomplicated why not embrace it and and when you're out there learn as much as you can because every year's you, you can get back to the bench and try to match the hatch i mean that's that's all part of what fly fishing's all about so have fun with it absolutely right on. good call yeah the knowledge isn't gonna hurt you no you know? no you don't have right. to obsess over it yeah but it's not gonna hurt you to understand what a slate drake nymph does when it emerges or anything else we For talked sure. about you know you got it yeah all right there it is Hatches and strategies. Thank you, as always, guys, for a great conversation. So, hey, I hope you listeners out there don't feel like we left you hanging. I mean, we just talked for an hour and a half, and we barely made a dent in this topic. But hopefully, this general overview gives you something to think about, a few things to look for on the water, and perhaps a few strategies for approaching the next hatch that you find on a river. The joy of having fly fishing in our life is the constant learning. And I know that in this conversation tonight, I learned a few more things from these guys. The education never ends. Again, one of fly fishing's most compelling attractions is also one of its deepest complexities. It's the bugs. Like so many others before me, I picked up a fly rod because I saw rising trout and I just couldn't match what the fish were eating with my spinning rod. And that allure of understanding how to present those bugs and catch trout and what they eat most both on top and underneath, has been with me ever since. It's a mystery. It's a wonderful pursuit. And it's one hell of a good rabbit hole to go down into. So I hope that what you've heard from us tonight is that chasing the hatches need not be daunting. You can approach things as generally or as specifically as you like. And both strategies can catch a pile of trout. But I will say that once you've seen an epic hatch at dusk, with rising trout all around and confidently eating the fly you selected. It's the kind of experience that draws you in for life. Thanks for listening, friends. Austin, will you read us out? Yeah. So, remember, ChopBitten.com is a free resource for all anglers. With over 800 articles, there are stories, commentaries, tactics, tips, and more. Find what you like through the top menu and through the search page. Navigate by way of the categories and the tags, too. Thank you for listening to the Trout Pitten Podcast. Please give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment, because it really does help us out. But until next time, friends, fish hard, enjoy the day, and find your life on the water.
Splat. Yeah, this is good stuff. You guys are laughing. I had to stop. <laughs>